if you're new, the last two weeks here have been crazy. Uh, two weeks ago, we were having one of our gatherings, and I made a statement because I wanted to prove the point that we don't need these trappings. I mean, this is a huge screen. You want this in your living room. I know you do. It's a huge screen, but we don't need it. We don't need lights. We don't need AC to encounter God. So I was making the statement, we don't need the lights. We don't need the AC. It was in the morning. Ten minutes later, the power went out in the entire grid. The power went out. The AC went out. The lights went out. And you could not see a thing. And I thought someone was playing a joke and flipped the switch. The rest of the gathering, if you were here, the rest of the gathering was done in the dark. I had just started. I talked for another 25 minutes in the dark. Then Brandon came up with an acoustic guitar. And we finished singing in the dark to the light of our iPhones. It was amazing. It was incredible. And uh, it was scary. (laughs) So be careful what you say. But, But then last week, it was followed up by uh, a strong message. If you missed last week, do the podcast. It came out actually stronger than I even intended it, but I think God was trying to get something to us about what it means to follow Jesus and to deal with the conflict that we're facing. All of us are facing relational conflicts, and sometimes we stuff it instead of dealing with it. And when we do that, we're stopping the work of God in our life. And so last week was a little bit, you know, punchy. So I am shocked if you came the last two weeks that you came for a third time. And uh, um, you never know what you're going to get. Well, what we're going to do here, though, is to, to take a step back. We, we usually take five or ten verses, if you're new, and we look at them in depth. But today we're going to look at 60. We're going to look at seven verses in chapter 6, and then 53 verses in chapter 7. And I'm not kidding. And it's not going to take long, because we're going to let the scriptures, the narrative, just tell us what God is trying to to say, but I, I need to get you up to speed because some of you, you're new here. The church is about to shift. What's been happening in the book of Acts, we're studying it, not to look at the ancient church, but to look at our church, not to look at the first Christians, but to look at us as Jesus followers in an equally secularized and divisive society that we live in. Just like they had their challenges, we have ours. And so the church is about to shift. There was one group Jews who are followers of Jesus in one city, Jerusalem. No one else had embraced the gospel. But what the Spirit of God does is he comes and begins to move in the lives of a few people and he shifts them. So what we're going to see in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 over the next few weeks, we're going to stop and do a series on prayer. But in, in prayer and thinking about it, we're going to keep going in Acts a little bit longer. Because God uses Luke to talk about four people that God uses deeply to shift the church on a bigger mission to a bigger place. The gospel is about to go out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth within a generation. And so one small group is, is catalytic to something massive. And I want to suggest this to you. I want to be this bombastic, that God may be setting us up. He may be setting you up to do a little shift in your world, a little shift in your thinking, a little shift in your lifestyle, to be used of God to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and reach to the next generation with the good news of Jesus. God may be doing that. You're like, no way. God may be doing that because we see it in the life of four leaders. We see Stephen, then we see Philip, then we're going to see Saul who becomes Paul, uh, and then finally we're going to look at Cornelius who's not even a Jew but God touches him. All right, that's the next few months. But tonight we're going to look at Stephen. We're going to let the story tell the story. So if you got the Bible, go to Acts 6, and we'll look at verse uh, verse 8. Stephen is one of the seven that was chosen, and we looked at that last week. Verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The Spirit gave him as he spoke. So here's what we're seeing. First, it's just the 12, the apostles, full of the Spirit, doing miraculous things. But now we see Stephen. God's power, God's presence, God's work is happening not just to a few. It's happening to everyone. And Stephen's one of those leaders. And he's doing exactly what Peter and John and the others are doing. And exactly what happens to the first leaders happens to him. Opposition. 
We've been saying it, but I need to repeat it. Wherever God pushes us forward, there's always push back. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's no surprise, Michael and Christina are just talking about, they announced last week in the morning that God's about to do this thing, and this week is full of chaos. It's not a surprise. Where God pushes us forward, the enemy wants to push back because he's a thief, and he wants to steal what God is doing. But look at what happens. Stephen, they can't stand up to him, not because he's a superhero or intelligent, because the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he speaks. And what does that tell us? Whenever God calls us something we don't know what to do, we don't have to trust our human ability, our degree, our, our capability. We believe that if God gives us the call, God equips us with what we need in the moment. And that's Stephen's experience. So, verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, they arrested him, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Remember, this group is the supreme court for Jews. So they take him all the way to the top authorities, the top PhDs, the top leaders, and they produced false witnesses, so they're scam artists, who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. This is huge. What is the pushback? Because he is repeating what Jesus says. Look at verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, what did Jesus actually say? John 2, I'll put it on the screen for you. The Jews responded to Jesus, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all that you're doing? Jesus said, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. But notice the hook that John gives us. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build the temple. You're going to raise it in three days. But the temple Jesus spoken about was his body. All right, some of us may be new to church, so I need to tell you what's going on. The guys who arrest Stephen are the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, in Roman society in the first century was one of the major wonders of the world. If you go to, to like the pyramids in Cairo, Egypt, or the Great Wall of China, the Jewish temple was one of those places you would want to see in your lifetime. And it took 46 years for them to rebuild it and reshape it. And the gold glittered and it was beautiful. Now the leaders are the Sanhedrin. These are the guys in charge. And it's their job to keep things in order. So they have the law given by Moses, which describes centuries prior what God's house should look like. Now when God gave it to Moses, it was a tent. But they just took the schematics of the tent and they fossilized it. They made it with walls and made it more beautiful. But this is how worship is supposed to happen. So these are the guys in charge and they don't like what Stephen is preaching because Stephen is just saying what Jesus said. Life in God is about more than a place. Now we're going to come back to that again and again and again because this ancient like battle isn't a battle we're facing, but the same kind of dilemma is a dilemma we're facing. How do I encounter God? How do I really know God? And where do I get to be with God? For them, for the Jewish people, there was no better place, no more important place than the temple. So they, they can't refute this guy because he has authority and he's working miracles. So they want to destroy him. Uh, now look at verse 15. Intriguing. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel, like something his grandma would say, oh, he's so cute. You know, like, he's Stevie, your face is just like an angel. You know, like, what is, what's that? Why in the world would Luke say that? Angel, hold on to that. That's going to be a theme throughout this text, and we'll, we'll unpack it at the end. But why are they looking to accuse him of coming against the law of Moses and the holy place? If you look at verse 13, it's the key to everything. False witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. What's the accusation? That he is saying this place is not sacred. Now, the Romans had the power to kill you. The Jews did not. Except the Romans gave one exemption. If they found someone guilty of blaspheming the holy place, the temple, then the Jews, if they found someone guilty, could kill you. 
This was their one way of capital punishment. You want to get rid of Stephen? Get a false witness to say, this guy's speaking against God's place. And they, would have, they tried to do this with Jesus. Remember the trial of Jesus? They tried Jesus and they tried to get him to be found guilty of blasphemy. But Jesus is silent. So they can't get Jesus accused of that charge. So they pass him to Pilate and they get Rome to kill Jesus because they don't have the power. So same thing happens to Jesus. Speaking truth now happens to Peter and John in the previous chapters. Now happens to Stephen, a.k.a. this will happen to you. If you choose to follow Jesus and do what he wants for your life, there will be times where you get pushback. It may be obvious like this or subtle in the workplace or in school or in culture. If we choose to follow Jesus, there will be conflict. Now look at the conflict that Stephen faces and look at how he answers it. And and we'll just read on. Verse 1 of chapter 7. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Because again, the high priest could, if he says, yes, they are, he could put him to death. Verse 2, he says, with respect. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He puts himself, he's smart. If you're facing confrontation, you don't, you don't go toe-to-toe. You humble yourself and say, okay, brothers and fathers, these are his leaders. Listen to me. And then I want you to write down four names of four people that he's going to bring up. And Stephen, full of wisdom given by the Spirit, is going to totally destroy their argument. Absolutely demolish it. And he does it with humility and grace like an angel. I'll get back to the angel in a bit. Four names you need to write down. Abraham and uh, Joseph and Moses and David. Write down those names because as, if you're note-taking, I want you to jot down some thoughts about those because it's huge when, when it comes to the argument he's facing. Again, this sounds archaic. I know it was sunny all day. You're dehydrated. You need Jesus, right? But, but hang in there. It's a lot of reading, but it's worth it. Verse 2. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Hang on to that. That's key. Before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I'm going to show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land, Jerusalem, where they're standing, where we are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, nor not even the ground, uh, not even enough ground to set his foot upon, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Now God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, his descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, which is Egypt. Hold on to that for later. Um, And God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, I I know I'm rolling fast, but we don't want to get caught in the details. We're going to look from a big picture view. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David. What's the accusation? The accusation is you, Stephen, are speaking against this holy place and the law of Moses. The temple is there because God gave the schematics to Moses. You, Stephen, are against Moses, and Moses is for God, a.k.a. we, the Sanhedrin, we stand for God, and you're against God. That's the accusation. Now, what does... What does Stephen do? It is absolutely brilliant. He takes the very words of God that they know by heart. Every one of these men who's hearing it would have memorized the entire Hebrew scriptures. You do not get to that level if you do not know all of the Bible by heart. But what does he do? He takes him on a history lesson and says, you have misread what God has said. The first misreading is about Abraham. So here's the question. Where did God meet Abraham? It's right in there. Did you read it? Where's, where's the town? It's the weird name one. Yeah, Mesopotamia. Thank you very much. Mesopotamia. God meets with Abraham, not in Jerusalem. And is there a temple in Mesopotamia? No. Okay. 
So he says to his accusers, you're accusing me of speaking against the holy place because this is the place where we meet with God. But didn't God meet with Abraham outside of Jerusalem? And didn't God meet with him outside of a temple? What is he saying? God's presence isn't limited to one place. Get that. A lot of the misunderstanding between these Jewish people and the message of Jesus is that God's not limited to one place. And they had done what shouldn't have been done. God always wanted to meet with his people. Always. Read the Bible. And it's not about God zapping people. It's about God bringing people in. Inviting people in. Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, Genesis 3, walking, talking with God. They sin, they mess up. God goes after them. Where are you? Where are you? And he clothes them and he covers them. And they're removed from the place of blessing, but he's with them. And God's looking to come and find people and bring them along. But they misunderstood the Sanhedrin, God's agenda. God was never about, come meet me in one building in one place. The place was supposed to point to something bigger. I'll get to that later. And don't forget about angels. We're eventually going to see touched by an angel and we're all going to cry. Anyway, maybe not. All right, second guy, Joseph. Let's move on. Verse nine. The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Egypt, that's number one. But God was with them and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Egypt, that's two. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt. Oh, that's three. And all of his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt for and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. Now, when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, five, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent first father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, oh, six, then he, where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Okay, now Joseph is the second person. Abram, God is not limited to one place. But then God comes to Joseph. So same question. Where did God meet with Joseph. Okay, thank you very much. How many times does it mention Egypt in those verses? Six times. Repetition. Okay, now what we don't get is if you think there's angst between hipsters on the east side of Portland and Hillsborough, if you don't think there's angst, then you have not been to the east side, all right? So, So east siders, they got Pips Donuts, they got food carts, we've got jobs. And... It's actually not a joke. It's true. So, so <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> not in the notes. Off script. All right. So you think there's angst between hipsters in the east side and Hillsborough. You haven't seen anything yet to the angst between Israelites and Egypt. Egyptians kept God's people for 400 plus years in absolute impoverished slavery. So Israelites hated Egypt was the metaphor for sin. Oh, that's Egyptian. That's sinful. That's death. But what what does Joseph do? Slick. God meets Joseph in the place of evil. In the worst place. God meets with him again and again. As a matter of fact, God gives him favor in an evil place. You see, not only is God not limited to, to, to one space, God shows up in the most surprising places. Catch that. What am I saying? You can't put God in a box. The Sanhedrin want to put God in the temple box and all Stephen is doing is saying, your box is too small and your box doesn't fit in the story of God. The story of God is about God coming to Abraham who's in Mesopotamia and says, I, I'm going to give you land in your future. It comes to Joseph says, I'm going to deliver you out of darkness. I'm going to, I'm going to bring your people out. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you blessing. They were in a literal famine. And all of the people, Israelite and Egyptian, survive because of Joseph. 
God meets with people in the most surprising places. And so this, let's just apply it for a microsecond because I got to move on. You could be in the worst spot right now. Can I suggest to you, you don't need God to get you out of your spot. You just need to see where God is. He's in Egypt. He said, well, I'm struggling with, I'm suffering with, and I, God, just get me out. And he's saying, I can come be with you in Egypt. And at the right time, I could get you through the famine. I could get you out into the land of blessing. God is not done. He comes and he meets us even in our horrific places. So I got to keep going. So we got two guys, Abraham, Joseph. Third guy's Moses. Now, disclaimer, Moses gets the most like ink. He talks about Moses more than anybody. Here's why. They accuse Stephen of saying, you've spoken against Moses who had the schematics for the temple and is the, the biggest hero. He's the deliverer. Verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt and he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Sounds like a mom, right? Look at my boy, you know. For three months, he, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and it was powerful in speech and action. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people. So Moses, even when he's young, knows He's a part of this God people. The Israelites, verse 24. He saw one of them being mistreated by the Egyptians, so he went out to, uh, to defend and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Shouldn't have done that. Moses thought that his own people would realize God's using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Evidently, pre-internet, news travels fast. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. Midian, catch that. Where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, after 40 days had passed, an angel, ah, there's the angel word again. We'll come back to that later. Appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard the groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected. Now we'll keep going, but I need to pause here for a minute. Where did God meet with Moses? Midian. Where did God meet with Abraham? Like, oh, uh, it's another M word. M and M, M, uh, Mesopotamia, right? Where does God meet with Joseph? In Egypt. Where does God meet with Moses? Midian. Come on, people. Get your M straight. Anyway, Midian. Well, here's my point. None of those places are the holy land where the temple is. So was there a temple dedicated to the creator God when God met with Moses by the base of a mountain with a bush? No. So, again, he's, he's, he's building his case. He's making a point. The point is, you guys are convinced I'm in the wrong, but you actually have misread the scriptures. God always meets with people in all sorts of places. So here's what we learn from Moses. There is holy ground outside the Holy Land. Wherever God is, is holy. Write that down. There is holy ground outside the Holy Land. Wherever God is, is holy. So, no matter where I find myself, if I want to encounter the living God, now this is all before the temple. This is his point. God has been building a pattern 
he, you can't put him in a box and he shows up in the strangest places. And by the way, wherever God is, that's the place that's sacred. He's doing this in opposition to them saying, this one temple is the one place to meet with God. Now he's going to do something else about Moses. It's subtle, but you're smart people here tonight. You're going to pick up on it. They're yelling at him for being against Moses. But guess what? There are some people who are also against Moses. Verse 35, we'll keep reading. This is the Moses they had, the people before, had rejected with the words, who made your ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel. There goes that angel again, who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt of the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Okay, pause. At this point, what he's going to do, and I'll read the rest, he's going to build a case to say, Moses is the guy that you revere. But let's not forget the whole Moses story. When Moses is living, there are people who seem to be religious leaders, but actually opposed God and opposed Moses. You say, he's saying to the Sanhedrin, subtly, you say you're followers of Moses, but not everyone who says they follow Moses actually does. And some people who seem to be in, in line with God are actually opposed to God. And what Stephen's going to do is imply you, Sanhedrin, may be like them. Now, again, this is the kind of stuff that gets you killed. By the way, fast forward because you've already read the Bible. Come next week on Mother's Day, we're going to talk about Stephen getting killed. Talk about a chipper message. But it's actually one of the most beautiful things that could ever happen. To stand up and be counted for what really matters. More on that. If you're a mom, we'll give you a lily. Don't worry. Or I don't even know what a lily is. It sounded, it's a flower, I guess. Anyway. I, uh, so, so, so he's against Moses. So where were we? Verse what? Help me. I'm lost. 38. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel, spoke to him from Mount Sinai, angel again, with our ancestors, and he reserved the, received the living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Here's what some of the other people did. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Egypt is the evil place, the place of sin. They told Aaron, who's like Moses' cohort, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who lives out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. He was up on the mountain receiving the commands of God, and they thought he died. That was a time they made an idol in the form of a calf, which is an Egyptian concept, not God's plan. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. That's all Egyptian idolatry. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. And then he quotes Amos. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech, an evil god, and the star of your god, Rephim, another evil god. The idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle, which was the precursors of the temple. They had the holy place of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they had took the land the nation's God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. Okay, I, I know I'm going fast, but I'm just trying to make one point, and then we're going to get to the angel thing because it's, it's intriguing. Abraham and Joseph and now Moses, they hear from God outside of the temple. They hear from God outside of Jerusalem and God is with them. But there are people who say they are God followers who are really not. And you don't want to be caught on their team. And, and Stephen is saying with love, but he's pointing back to God's story that they know by heart. You could very well be those people. 
that say they're following, but in the end, you're following another God and you miss the point. And oh, by the way, Moses is the one who said, a prophet will come from your own people. Now, Jesus, in Stephen's preaching, is that prophet. Jesus is simply the one that Moses is pointing towards. And the very things that Moses said this prophet would do is exactly what Jesus would do. So you should be giddy about having the temple. But guess what? Jesus is the one who's the fulfillment of all of these pictures in tabernacles, sacrifices, temples. It's all leading somewhere. God wants his people close. God wants to be with them. He wants to make them holy. But you can't put God in a box. All right, now the final one is David. Believe it or not, we're almost done. And then we gotta get to the whole angel thing because I'm, I'm still stuck on that one. All right, where were we? I'm lost again. All right, 45. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But, which by the way, God said no. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house, a house for him. David had the heart to, the the tabernacle was mobile, literally. It had poles and sides and they moved it. Now, did David meet with God in the temple? Yes or no? No, No, it, it hadn't been made yet. The biggest iconic leaders, Abraham, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then David, all encountered, walk with God, live with God, follow God, and led God's people. None of them had the temple. And yet, you're saying to me, I'm getting in Stephen's shoes, you're saying to me that I'm preaching against the temple. No, no, no. This is exactly what God has always been doing. God speaks in the temple, sure, but that's not the only place. And God speaks through his people, you, the Sanhedrin, sure, but you're not the only people. God will raise up a prophet like no other. You must follow him, Moses says. And all Stephen is saying is the story of God from the beginning, Adam and Eve, garden, sin, destruction, and then blessing and grace and a way of escape and God's protection, the people of Israel, is all leading towards one thing, that there would be a community that actually knows God, walks with God, loves God, And this comes through Jesus. Now, this is the next line that we need to read because it's it's his real point. I could have read just 48 and skipped all this, but I think you may have missed something. So verse 48 is like the summary statement. Highlight it. However, the Most High, that's Yahweh, that's God, does not live in houses made by human hands. That is his point. God does not dwell exclusively in, in any house. And how does he know that? As the prophet, and he quotes scripture, says, heaven is my home and the earth is my footstool. You want to build God a house? This temple's great, but God made the planet. This house is like a footstool for him. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? You want to build God a living room? Good luck. Like, how are you going to fit me in in a house? Has not my hand made all these things? So, so God meets with David wherever he wants to. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. What is the heart of the gospel? I know we're almost done. We have a couple more to read. And we're going to do the angel thing. What is, what is the point? If God doesn't live in human houses, if God doesn't live in temples, what is Stephen's message? Catch this. Write it down. Jesus is the place that we meet with God. This is what's going to get Stephen killed. Jesus is the place that we meet with God. Angel, 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 angel. And then he points forward towards something different. What is, what is an angel? When, when I think of an angel, I immediately go to a diaper. I don't know why, visually. I immediately go to, like, not like hugs or huggies or whatever, but not like a little tabs, but like a loincloth diaper. And I think, you know, in the cloud and, and harp, because that like mentally, none of us believe that's an angel. But, but like my, my mind immediately goes there. But an angel is simply a messenger 
from God to people. Now, did you see how many times angel went throughout the whole scene? Stephen had the face like a what? Angel. Angel. Like any of the many messengers of God. So Stephen is in line with the messengers sent from God. He's in line with Abraham. He's in line with Joseph. He's in line with Moses. Moses, by the angel, received the law of God. And by the messenger of God, people speak. So when God speaks to us, I'm getting to a point. When God speaks to us, we become a messenger. Stephen is just in line with all of the people throughout scripture. When God comes to us and we encounter him, he puts a message on our lips and we must speak it out. I'm about to, to make the, the critical Monday morning point, with, which is what do you do in light of all of this? I want us to, before I make this point, see what Stephen does next. It's going to be scary, but it's actually important. First, Brothers and fathers. That's how he started the speech. Now verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Now he's getting it on. Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David are all on my side. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're, like, you're just like your ancestors who were against Moses and God squashed them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You could not insult them The spirit of God is in the place of God. And these guys are in charge of the house of God. And he says to them, you're resisting the Holy Spirit, just like your forefathers. How's that for a nice chipper line? Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, which is Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered Jesus. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. What does Stephen do and what in the world does this have to do with us? It it comes down to the whole angel thing. Am I saying that you become an angel? No, absolutely not. But the angel is the metaphor for the spokesman for God, the the one who communicates God's truth. Uh, And and that, that angel comes in many forms. Those messengers come through human prophets who speak like an angel, who speak the word of God. And so in the same way, Stephen becomes what we become when we receive this good news. I'm going to make an assumption that's wrong, but I'm going to assume it for a second. I'm going to assume that you are following Jesus. It's a false assumption, but I'll make it. Let's assume you choose to follow Jesus if you're not tonight. If you choose to follow Jesus, what does that imply? It implies that you've joined the company of people like Stephen, who God will use seemingly in a small way, but his life will make a dramatic impact in the trajectory of how the good news gets beyond Jews alone. God is going to use Stephen, just like he wants to use you. So when you sign up to follow Jesus, here is what that means. You receive God's message. You, you don't be like those ancestors who kill the prophets. You turn from your sin. You repent from sin and you turn to the living God. You say, God, I, I, I am like the ones who are worshiping false gods, false idols. I worship money, sex, whatever. I worship myself. I worship my job. I, I, I worship my recreation. I, I am worshiping everything but you, but God, I choose to worship you. When you do that, You receive the Holy Spirit. Remember Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. When you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to be a messenger. And really, that's all that an angel is in this context. Stephen is like those who've gone before him who speak for God. And so you and I, part of our opportunity and responsibility is to stand up is to stand up in an age that does not believe that what Jesus has done is worth following. And you see where we are. Now, none of us are on trial like Stephen, like the Jewish Sanhedrin, which doesn't exist, is not put you on trial. But in a very real way, whenever you choose to step out and follow Jesus, there will be pushback. And what do you and I do when we come against a culture 
that is opposed to the message and does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I want us to think about this. Two things that Stephen does or that we learn from his life that I hope that you grab a hold of. I hope that if, if you get nothing else out of it, that you say, okay, I want this to mark my life. You and I are called to be like Stephen. Now, you, you may not be on trial like he was, and you may not be murdered for your faith like he was, but you and I, if we have the Spirit, are called to stand up and to be counted as those who not only believe in Jesus, but actually are able to give a reasonable defense for why. Two things. The first thing is this. I pray that that you will grow in the scriptures and life in the spirit. That you'll grow in the scriptures and life in the spirit. That's, that's, That's Stephen's life. Did you notice this? He is not one of the PhDs. He is not one of the intellectual elite. But Stephen has immersed his mind in the scriptures. So he knows not only what they say, but what they mean and how they fit. Uh, Matt is, is teaching a class right now on Sunday mornings after the first gathering called Unpacking the Scriptures. Okay, if you say, well, how does this Stephen thing fit with me? The next time we offer the class, take it. Here's why. You can actually learn how to read, understand, interpret, and apply the Bible for yourself. So Stephen did the homework before his trial. He was prepared so that on the day that he had to give an account, he was able to stand against 70 of the top men and say, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David are all on my side. And you don't know what you're talking about. Now, he says stiff-necked people, and he's talking Jew to Jew and, and in that kind of argumentation, he could turn up the heat because he's one in the community. I'm not suggesting you go to your boss tomorrow and say, you stiff-necked cheapskate, give me a raise and follow Jesus. Or reverse, whatever, you know, whatever is like the need. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that if there's going to be a shift between, and hear this, people coming to church, which by the way, do you see the metaphor that's intriguing? This is not the place that we meet with God. This is not the temple. This is a place that we meet with God. Because to be with Jesus is to meet with God. So I can meet with God with you on the couch in your apartment as we engage in the scriptures together. I am in the presence of Jesus. Wherever God is, is holy. Wherever you and I are, becomes holy. It becomes set apart and useful for God's stuff. So we need to get away from the, I come here to get a fix and then I go off and do what I want. But what if you saw your life as true discipleship to Jesus? That your goal in life is to be transformed in your heart because only the Spirit can take the junk out and give you a new heart. Only the Spirit can do that. So to follow Jesus does not mean that you know, I go to church on occasion, I read a little Bible, I give a little bit, you know, especially in Nepal, throw in 10 bucks off my phone, you know, I'm helping humanity, and then try to be a good person, and God's good and loving and kind, and he, uh, he'll accept me, because that's what God does. God is love. He is absolutely love. But that's not all that he is. God is also just and so we can't come to God with that kind of mentality and think, well, I've embraced the gospel because I've been going to church since I was a kid. I went to a camp. That is, that's a good thing, but that does not mean that you're a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means that you come bankrupt, actually full of trash, and that you need God's absolute revolution in your soul and that you invite God to do what you cannot do for yourself, which is to rescue you from your own selfish destruction. So the gospel is the news that we have nothing to give God but that God loved us so much, so he gives us what we do not deserve. And he gives it by grace through the death and resurrection of his son so that you can be raised to new life, the picture of baptism, dead and buried, but now arise and alive and full of the spirit and a new future. And I pray for you that you embrace the real gospel and that the goal of the gospel is not that you get out of hell someday, although that's good stuff, but that 
Every day I live as a newborn person that I do not own myself. The Bible says I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I honor God with my body. And then I choose to allow God to remake me in my thinking, in my feeling, and in my action. So that at the end of my life, I am different and I look more like Jesus than I did like the old me when I started the race. That, my friends, is the goal of the gospel. And so we see in Stephen, he's immersed in the scriptures and the spirit and he's growing. So if this is a challenging word to you tonight, what I'm not saying is if you made a mistake, God doesn't love you. Don't hear that. What I'm saying is wake up because God has so much more to do through you, but he first has to get to you. God needs you and he needs your attention and your focus. What would it look like if I took my faith seriously? Now, here's why this is is important for us. We're not on trial Jews to Jews. That's not, but we are in a culture conflict because the culture around us no longer believes that any of this has any bit of validity. And what they are wondering is, what am I going to do with my life? So the prevailing philosophy of the day is it doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. And so all my friends on university campuses, that is the mantra. Look, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Just find a way that fits your ethic. Find your own path. Really, I wish that were true. But if that were true, we should put no one on trial for 9-11 and the bombings or people blowing themselves up in planes. As a matter of fact, we should applaud them. They actually believe in something. Because why in the world would I put someone on trial for believing something is true? So if I believe that if I blow up infidels, that I will enter the heavens and I'll have unlimited women because God shows pleasure in the actions and the sacrifice of my life, then I should applaud you because it doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters that you're sincere. Do you realize the conflict that we're in? We live in a culture that does not believe in Jesus as way, truth, and life. But here's the the, the deal. He is the way, truth, and life, so he's got you. And so as you and I are transformed by the Spirit and we allow God to do the work, we can be like Stephen. We can stand up against a huge opposing cultural force and simply say, this is the story of God and it's good news. It's great news. And it actually is consistent. And it actually works out rationally. And it actually leads to good now and now in the future. But the reason that we don't stand up, and I'll be blunt, is because we don't know what we believe. We don't know what we believe. And the only reason we don't know what we believe is because we've sat in chairs and come to gatherings and said, that's cool. I'll, be, I'll see you next week. But if we have the Spirit, I believe that tonight the Spirit is telling us, wake up. You can be useful. And God can do amazing things for you if you saturate your mind in the scriptures and the spirit. One last thought. We need to evaluate our traditions in light of Jesus. So what he, the temple, Stephen is not saying the temple is an evil place. He's simply saying, you misinterpreted the purpose of the temple. Your traditions are outside of God's plan And I think the same thing could be said for many of us. Some of our traditions, our traditional ways of saying I'm right or connected to God, they were handed down to us, but they're actually not healthy. They're not life-giving. Or maybe you've come down and you're like, I've got no traditions. Yes, you do. But your traditions that have been handed to you culturally or from your family or from your background or from your experience may not be in line with Jesus. So we need to take an inventory of what I do And then ask myself, is Jesus at the center of that? And if Jesus isn't at the center of that, then I need to choose Jesus over that. So I'm not saying, hey, Jose said, I can just encounter Jesus at the coast like next Sunday night, man. I'm I'm totally going to Pacific City. I'm just going to, I'm going to eat and drink to the glory of God by myself. And I'm going to Instagram and it's going to be awesome. You know, I'm not saying that. I am saying some traditions though are devoid of life. Find those that are connected to Jesus and live those out. I would love to say that the third message would have been lighter than the second message, but sorry, it didn't work out that way. 
But that's okay because there's grace. So everything I said, I believe to be consistent with what Jesus said. You test it yourself. But what do I do now? Grace. If you feel slightly stirred, like, man, I haven't, I should have, I could have. Don't let the enemy twist that and turn that to condemnation. But rather let the Spirit remind you that there's grace for you. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. And Jesus, even if you squandered a few months or a few years, Jesus can redeem. And even if you've been a little slack in your pursuit, if you choose to go the way of Jesus, there is grace for you. And your life can count and your life will count. We saw it tonight. People chose to say, I'm going to go the way of Jesus. And I have no idea what the Spirit's going to do, but it's pretty amazing. Because the Spirit uses anybody to reach anybody. So tonight, a couple of things we need to do. Number one, we need to celebrate. We're going to go to the bread and the cup in a minute. Brandon's going to come. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. And we're going to celebrate that there's grace for you. There's grace for me tonight. If you've chosen the way of Jesus, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, don't feel condemned by what you did. Let Jesus liberate you by reminding yourself that you are in him. And Jesus' body and blood represented in the bread and the juice is enough for you tonight. There's grace for you. But secondly, if you've not yet chosen to follow Jesus, please don't be stiff-necked. Don't be resistant like them. We have no record of that group entering into the kingdom of God. I don't know if they did. I hope they did. But it actually, the, the, the line of the text, and we'll see next week, tells me that they were hard-hearted and resistant. Don't be that way. Tonight, let the Spirit of God soften your heart and choose to follow Jesus. You say, how do I choose to follow Jesus? It's a moment of decision that leads to a lifetime of adjustments. In a moment, I say, Jesus, I've got nothing. You have everything. I, I choose to give up my destructiveness for your healing and your grace and your mercy. I want to follow you. God does the saving in the moment that we express our faith and trust in him and him alone to do it. But then it's lived out. So early in the story of God, early in the gospels, we see that people, men and women, young and old, when they chose that in their soul, went public and visibly in front of everyone else said, I am now a child of God. And they went into the water and they were dead to their old self and they came up and it was a symbol that I am alive in Christ. I'm new, I'm washed. I got a whole new start.